Welcome to episode 37 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dana Suskin, MD. Dr. Suskin is the founder and co-director of the TMW Center for Early Learning plus Public Health and director of the Pediatric Cochlear Implant Program and a professor of surgery in pediatrics and public policy at the University of Chicago. She's a recognized thought leader on the national stage. Dana has dedicated her research and clinical life to optimizing fundamental and foundational brain development and preventing early cognitive disparities and their lifelong impact. Her work is focused in particular on helping parents leverage their power as brain architects. Dr. Suskin is the author of 30 Million Words, Building a Child's Brain. She is a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics and a fellow for the Council on Early Childhood. Her work has been profiled by numerous media outlets, including The New York Times, The Economist, Forbes, NPR, and Freakonomics. It is my pleasure to welcome Dana Suskin and the author of Parent Nation to the podcast. So, Dr. Dana Suskind, welcome to the podcast. For those who may not know of your work, can you give us a brief introduction? Yeah, so I am, I like to call myself a surgical social scientist. So I oh, am a pediatric, otol- I, I made that up, but <laughs> I like uh, it. <laughs> I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist who focused uh, my career on pediatric cochlear implantation. And through my work as a um, a physician who cared for children with hearing loss, uh, I don't want to say fell into, but started an incredible journey, uh, research and um, I guess activist journey into how it is that we best support all children, uh, including children with hearing loss in the early years by supporting their parents and caregivers. So I um, most, most of your readers may have known me from my first book, 30 Million Words, Building a Child's Brain. Um, and obviously, I have this new book uh, that just came out with my co-author, Lydia uh, Denworth, called Parent Nation, uh, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise. But long and short of it, my clinical and research work uh, through 
a center I co-direct has always been directed at giving all children the best possible chance at uh, reaching their potentials. And I, I think, you know, certainly other places were work, you know, in terms of serving kids with hearing loss, um, we're working with parents and, and talking about uh, parents and how important they were, but you guys really jumped into uh, the one important area other or sort of the, the lower socioeconomic uh, status uh, in working with all families. And I think, I think, you know, all the feedback that I've gotten in the past is that sometimes when we see these videos, it's always the middle-class videos of the, of the kids doing well and, and, and never people that have more diverse backgrounds. Well, and, let, let me, and you guys really jumped into that. So it was great. Well, no, no. I mean, and let me be clear that so much of my work has been influenced by the powerful research and work that's been done in the world of hearing loss. I mean, mm-hmm. you all, I don't want to say you all, but this, this field really, I think, got understood early how important the early years are for children's language and brain development. Um, in my own career as a pediatric implant surgeon, really seeing the disparities in outcomes amongst my patients, um, especially children born into poverty, um, and it's seeing that disparity and knowing that every child has a potential to learn to talk and listen equally, right, um, really was the impetus for all of my research. So I don't want to, I mean, I think many people have been grappling with this, care deeply about it. It's just that I really focused my, my efforts on trying to figure out how it is that we give every child the best chance to reach their listening and spoken language potential and, and how to support every parent in that. I, I don't know if I was, there are many people who have cared deeply about it. I think because I crossed over into typically Developing children probably is what um, enlarged the platform of my work, but um, you all are you all are the originals. So, right, you know what you guys are doing now. Uh, let's talk about the center that you developed and and how that is going, and some of the research that that you did in the past, and then how you're building on that for the for now and in the future. Yeah. So you know the journey was implant surgeons, seeing huge differences in outcomes, trying to figure it out why this was, and more importantly, what I could do about it for my own patients, right? Learning about the powerful early child development literature, neuroscience, showing the importance of the early years. But really, the what then took me to the next level is understanding that the differences in input and the impact that they had on my patients really mirrored a larger issue in our country that for all children, the early language environment, the, the, that, that those first three years of life are critical for getting children off to the best possible start. So the center that I co-direct at the university, the TMW Center for Early Learning and Public Health, really focuses all its efforts on, you know, a population level shift. How do we give all parents, all caregivers, the knowledge and skills to best build their children's brains? And that was a lot of the focus of my, you know, first decade of work, developing curriculum and tools, running trials, you know, advancing the science of what we 
know to be true that parents and parents and caregivers are children's first and most important brain architects uh, and language developers. But in my own sort of journey, you know, working with children and families, you know, from, you know, the first days of life, and seeing just how much parents were sort of embracing these ideas, you know, in our center, we, we call it the three T's for building children's brains, tuning in, talking more, taking turns, seeing how parents embrace these ideas, but that society put barrier after barrier after barrier in the ways of, uh, of, of families was really the impetus for this next book and much of my work and talking because, you know, we can know all this powerful science. And let me tell you, I mean, if we didn't have one more randomized control trial in the world of hearing loss or in typically developing, um, you know, science, we know so much about what children need to thrive. The big disconnect is how we support parents and caregivers in making that a reality. And so that's much of my work right now. Right. And just looking at it across the board, uh, those typical uh, developing kids as well, and, and, and really understanding all this, it's, it's really exciting. And um, in terms of the, the new book, uh, your collaborator, Lydia, uh, described sort of 3 million words as sort of what, maybe the individual could do, but parent nation kind of builds on that. And basically is saying, this is what we need to do as a society. In a sense, this is what we need to do from the, as what we used to say from the grassroots to the treetops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the, the way I would think about it is, mm-hmm. is that, you know, when, when I wrote the first book, 30 million words, it was really about exploring, you know, the neuroscience, as Lydia says, on the individual level, what do children need to thrive and what do parents and caregivers need to understand at the individual level and let me tell you people sort of gobbled it up you know you know whole mm-hmm. cloth i mean obviously it was never about just number of it wasn't about number of words it was about the importance of language rich language environments this this really takes that same neuroscience and sort of expands it and says okay if we know this to be true at an individual level what does a society look like that really puts puts the neuroscience, you know, that is aligned with the neuroscience that parents and caregivers are the key architects. And what does a society look like that truly supports parents and caregivers? So um, it's, it's really the same neuroscience, you know, with a much broader lens. Right. Right. And let's, let's just kind of go into the book a bit. And, and this is the the new release, the uh, parent nation. And, you know, as I read it, I, I read it, I came across, you know, a few stories that kind of resonated with me. One uh, was uh, Kimberly Montez. And the reason it really resonated with me is that my wife and I, our first child was born in North Carolina, where mm-hmm. Kimberly is. Our daughter, uh, 28 years ago, was born at 26 weeks gestation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she spent 67 days in the NICU, and we experienced that whole process. Um, she's uh, doing great now. She's married and, and off to a wonderful life um, and is a, is a nurse. Uh, so she's, she's, she did fine. And, and my wife and I, both being speech pathologists, we, we were going to make sure we were going to do everything <laughs> we could. She got every word she needed. Well, yeah. And but you know we also knew we also knew what could go wrong 
you know, potentially. And, and, but there was a lot of other stuff we didn't know. And so, you know, what Kimberly talks about with Penelope, was it Penelope that she had, uh, who was such a, a preemie being on the other side with Kimberly being a physician and being on the other side and experiencing the process. And we, we certainly had some physicians there uh, that, you know, they would do rounds and go to all the incubators and some physicians would, you know, pause and talk to the parents who were sitting right there and, and kind of explain what was going on, you know, which is what we wanted, you know, we wanted that. And then other physicians would, wouldn't even make eye contact. And um, there was one especially that w- that would do that, and uh, he did it once, and then my wife didn't let him do it ever again. <laughs> yeah, uh, she cornered him and and basically explained why he needed to take more time and talk to parents, and and that she would expect him to explain all this, you know, what the treatment was going to be and what, you know, what was coming next and all those things. So that, you know, her whole story really resonated and I'm, and it's really exciting to see what she's doing now with her advocacy work as well as, as one story that's in the book. Yeah, no, I, I think Kimberly, I mean, I tried very hard with the stories and these are all people that I, that either we've worked with or mm-hmm. I've, you know, inter intersected, but I really tried very hard to tell stories from across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the incredible families that I work with at the TMW Center, they, the barriers that society place in their way, I, it's, it almost feels an impossible feat, right? So I told the story of, you know, Sabrina, who had a well-paying job, but because she had to take care of her husband, ended up in a homeless shelter with her family for over two years, you know, with the youngest a baby, um, right. because she, she, she didn't have paid medical leave. I tell another mm-hmm. story of Michael and Kiana, Michael, the father mm-hmm. of Mikeon, being incarcerated for the first right. five years of her, his son's life, waiting a trial, which he was quickly exonerated. So right. those stories are the show the impossibility, not the impossibility, but just how impossible we make it for some families in this country. And but but I wanted to also show that we make it hard for every, almost every family. Right. And Kimberly Montes. This story here, she's a pediatrician, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she trained at, you know, all the be- best institutions. She had a baby, you know, at 20, you know, an extremely premature baby, but mm-hmm. because she didn't have paid leave, you know, had to leave her baby in the NICU during those formative times when, you know, you know, and your listeners know this is exactly when you need your mom and your dad there or your caregiver there providing rich language environments, even in the incubator. But because of the lack of paid leave and she couldn't afford it, she had to go back to work taking care of other people's children, which which is great and wonderful. But, you know, just how this country, it's we've made it we are just not centered on the neuroscience. We're not centered on children and families. Um, and I think that we're seeing that more and more. I mean, the whole formula crisis, we just, um, yeah, exactly. so anyway, so yeah, that there was an intentionality of showing 
stories from all demographics, all political, mm-hmm. all religious, all different ways of parenting children. I mean, I, I am a firm believer that there are many ways to parent a child, mm-hmm. only one way to build a brain through nurturing interaction. But um, so, yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Yeah, you, you describe parents as brain architects. What do you mean by that? For yeah. those who might be like, what is she talking about? Yeah. So we always, you know, the, and when I say parent, I mean, in the broadest sense, you know, Mm -hmm. a loving caregiver, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, anyone can build a child's brain. They basically, you know, we, we often think about the brain, you know, it's an organ, but most people really, I don't think have thought about the fact that you know, the brain comes out pretty underdeveloped, you know, absolutely dependent on what it encounters on its ride to full development. In those first three years of life, this brain is waiting for the nurturing interaction of parents and caregivers who are literally building the infrastructure of that brain through, you know, this nurturing serve and return. It's wiring up the, you know, billions of neurons, you know, that is providing the foundation for listening and spoken language, for literacy, for socio-emotional development. And so, you know, we often talk about parents as children's first and most important teachers, but at some level, they are brain architects. And um, and society should, you know, in the same way we respect a real, you know, an architect, I think we need to support and respect uh, parents and caregivers in that way. They're, they're doing something even more important, maybe. <laughs> obviously yeah, yeah. you know and but we we don't and and what i found fascinating is is you had you know research in the book you know looking at basically what the parent understood sort of that first week of the child's life in terms of how they should interact would sort of guide them that you know forward and uh you know and, and it also struck me that you know, if the parents simply don't know what to do, they're not going to do it. I mean, I mean, it sounds so simple, but when you really try to wrap your mind around it, it, it it's more complex, like you're saying. And and even with the families I work with and, and, and what you've seen with kids with hearing loss, you know, what we've always heard is that, you know, even when the parent, when the mother is pregnant, they never hear about the possibility of hearing loss being one of those areas. And so there's probably no information about what they need to know for the average parent, not the parents in your program. Uh, but, you know, the average parent probably just doesn't understand why talking and that serve and return and, and language exposure, and yeah. what it's all about. And they're going to have this baby and they just don't know. And, and I've always heard that we parent sort of the way we were parented. Uh, and so I think, you know, what the book is doing is sort of we got to break that cycle and focus on what we really need to do. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, you make a, you know, important point that, you know, look, I think that at some primitive level, we all, you know, as parents, we are imbued with this, you know, wanting to love and protect and nurture our child. So that that is, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you don't necessarily need an instruction, you don't, there's no instruction guide necessary for that. But, but I think that understanding the neuroscience, and how I mean, everything that's changed, there's no instruction guide for that. So there needs to be an important dissemination. And 
there are two things. One is, you know, this issue of parents not realizing if a child has hearing loss, the implications for that, um, that is so, so critically important. Actually, uh, I mean, I don't know, you know, I really love the public health campaign that Obercotter is doing, uh, you know, related to hearing first, because it's getting it out of the echo chamber that's so important. I mean, we know that, you know, most children born with hearing loss are not born to people who are speech language pathologists or have a hearing loss, right? Right. They're, They're, you know people who may have never even met somebody with hearing loss. So getting this information out is so critical, just like it's important for parents to understand, you know, the ways that their language and interaction build their child's brain. And in the science that we've, we are pushing forward at the center, it's really exploring how, what parents and caregivers know and believe maps into how they nurture their child and their children's outcomes. So we have a a uh, nature communication paper basically showing this really nice link that the not just the more that par- the more the parents know the more facilitative behavior they have for nurturing their child's brain the better their child's outcomes and the reason i like this literature is that Look, none of us, you know, to become a doctor, to become a speech language pathologist, it's not like you're born with that knowledge. You, you, you're provided that information. And I think we need to do a better job of providing universally these important tenants to all parents, you know, it, to think that you're born with it or to, you know, it, it's, I think that it's sort of part of the anxiety that so many families are feeling because you're like, okay, I've got to learn everything that I can, you know, on my own, you know, and sometimes you learn the right stuff. Sometimes you don't learn, you know, it's not the right stuff, Um, but we need to do a better job of, you know, empowering parents, not just, you know, empowering parents with the knowledge of how their children you know, develop and so they can nurture their child the way they feel is best. Um, as well as having a society that actually supports them, gives them time with their child. Sure. So, you know, the question comes down to how do we do this? And and so in the book, uh, towards the end of the book, uh, you you have some detailed strategies for families, for communities uh, to implement. So how do we build a parent nation? Well, first, maybe let me define what a parent nation is. A parent okay. nation is a society that that values the labor and love of parents and caregivers for building the next generation mm-hmm. uh, and supports them. That's aligned with the early neuroscience that, you know, parents and caregivers in the first years of life are children's first and most important brain architects. Um, And how do we do it? I always say that, look, we have so much science about what children need to thrive. Um, We have an economic case, which is incredibly powerful, right? I mean, you know, not only do you get a huge return on investment societally, you know, for every dollar we invest, we get $12 back. But from a corporate standpoint, from a corporate America standpoint, we are, we are not fulfilling our, our potential. So what don't we have? We don't have the public will. We don't have um, parents really 
speaking as a collective voice, understanding that, you know, raising that none of us raise children. I mean, we raise children alone. We are the parents, but that parents deserve and should demand support. So to build a parent nation, really what we need to do is start speaking with a collective voice. And I tell the, we tell the story in the book about the AARP, how, you know, about a half a century ago, there was another, um, at that time, the poorest, most underserved age demographic wasn't children, right? Today, children are the poorest, but under five children are the poorest and therefore their parents. But it was the elderly. And the elderly, 50% lived below the minimum standards of decency. They had no health insurance. They had no retirement. They were in desperate shape. And through the AARP and really coming together to advocate across, you know, political, religious, demographic uh, lines, to advance the the well-being of all elderly. Now, no demographic is better cared for. Um, So, and I think parents and caregivers can be that for each other. I think through a sort of a collective voice, through a, you know, a parent coalition, if you will, um, for the first, you know, five years of life that we can really push forward. Now, your listeners aren't going to be, you know, we're not going to say, okay, let's go build it. But what can you do now? I would recommend everybody go to first give yourself grace, right? It has been a hard two years. I really do believe there's something called good enough parenting. As long as you talk and interact with your child, look, none of us, there's no such thing as parent, perfect parents. Um, And you give yourself grace and then go to parentnation.org, see the resources we have a lot of downloadable free resources in English and Spanish to to come together to you know advocate on behalf of all parents and and uh, and that's that's what I'd recommend. I mean, I could go on and on, but that's that's the down and down and short of it. So, so um, five years out, what would you hope to see? <laughs> Oh, Lord. I mean, this moment in time, I'd like to see anything. (laughs) It's been a really rough um, couple years. These last few months have been surreal. I mean, you know, let me ask it a different way. Texas is really, it's very painful. So I'd like it to be different. I'd like us to look back and say, oh, my gosh. How was it that one in four mothers were going back to work after two weeks of giving birth? Of course, we have paid family and medical leave. That's like the biggest no-brainer. Oh, of course, children with hearing loss are getting not just diagnosed early, but are getting the services and support that their parents need to allow them to to thrive, that we have a high quality child care system that really gets all children ready to, uh, for school. Um, you know, basically I'd like a society that actually supports children and families. Um, this moment in time, it's, it's feeling like a tall order, but I really do believe that, that this can happen. And uh, I asked your collaborator this question. Uh, do you think as a country, we can still do big things? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know that right now people are feeling not so great, but let me tell you, (laughs) 
there have been other moments in time that have been not so great. And we have emerged stronger, more whole and more just, right? I mean, I think about the you know, the AARP story and what it meant to be elderly a half a century ago and how different it is. I absolutely believe it. But, you know, it means that we we must come together. So, so yes. It can happen. Absolutely. If we agree absolutely. to support a parent nation. Yeah, absolutely. Where we, where we see that there's more that unites us than divides us, that at the end of the day, all parents and caregivers love their children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can see that that we are bound by sleepless nights and undying love for our children and that, you know, it it takes us seeing that and that our children are our future and we need to invest in that way, that that can be an important first step to healing and moving forward. I think that's a I think that's a a great diagnosis and prescription for the future. How's that? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, uh Dana, Dr. Suskin, thank you for being on the podcast and I really appreciate your time and good luck with Parent Nation, the book. And how can people reach out? They can go to the parentnation.org website. Absolutely. Uh, And there's all that, uh, there's so much information and, um, and you, I I was surprised that you didn't mention that the beginning of the book starts with a child with hearing loss and it does the operating room. So Mm -hmm. probably the only book known to (laughs) that's ever done that. So, well, I didn't, I didn't want to do the overkill on, on hearing loss, but, but thank you. Thank you again for all of this. And, and, And I think we'll get more people trying to work with you uh, to build this parent nation. I think, I think you've hit on something that, you know, we all hope will, will be a big thing that we can do as a country. Knock on wood. Yes. Move forward. Well, so great to see you again. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was Dr. Dana Suskin. Thank you again, Dana, for joining us on the podcast. It is such an incredible book. And I really encourage everyone, if you have an interest in children, whether you are a professional as a teacher, early interventionist, speech-language pathologist, audiologist, doesn't really matter. If you're working with children, you need to have this book. If you're a parent and you want to know how to build that child's brain, build your child's brain, be that that brain architect, as Dana refers to. This is an important book. And more importantly, this book also is sort of a looking at a systems approach of how we as a nation need to really invest in the brains of our children. We need to solve some really major issues, and this book helps provide guidance in how we might be able to do that. So I really applaud uh, Dr. Suskin and Lydia Dinworth for also uh, contributing to this book. Uh, It is such an important policy book, uh, but also very straightforward with great recommendations and strategies and techniques that anyone can use. So parent nation, we as a nation have to embrace our parents and give them the tools to help grow their child's brains. 
So go buy the book. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, I certainly did. And it certainly has changed uh, my thinking on a lot of things in terms of, you know, how we need to really be engaged, everybody, in, in creating a much better opportunities for learning for all of our children. So with that, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Uh, please, if you don't mind, rate, review, subscribe, follow, share, wherever you can. Uh, we really appreciate all of our listeners, but we also want to attract new listeners. So help us do that by leaving that five-star review or sharing this podcast with someone you think might um, enjoy it or benefit from it. And with that, I'll see you again next week, or I'll actually in two weeks uh, with another episode. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.